The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hello, and welcome to another episode of Matterfile, where I finally got around to doing an episode that I've been meaning to do ever since we came out with the episodes on Poland. If you remember the third episode on Poland, I touched on the reasons why Poland was able to transition to a post-communist economy incredibly successfully, and then weathered the 2008 financial crisis and has been Europe's growth champion ever since. This week, we speak with Professor Marcin Pietkowski and extend this analysis to better understand the reasons underlying Poland's supernormal economic growth. We talk about factors like the role of currency manipulation and good institutions in helping fortify an economy against external shocks. We also talk about factors such as labour productivity and regional integration that help Poland do a lot better than countries such as Slovakia and the Czech Republic, which liberalised at a similar time with similar policies. It's an incredibly interesting episode because we also predict that Poland is probably going to be able to weather the impending post-COVID-19 recession a whole lot better than most countries in the world. All that and more, here's our conversation. Welcome to this episode of Matterfile, where I'm joined by Professor Marcin Pietkowski, who is a Associate Professor of Economics at Koszminski University in Warsaw and the author of Europe's Growth Champion. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you for having me. I want to start with the premise of your book, because your book starts off by saying that Economists often overemphasize the role of macroeconomic policy, etc., in providing growth and allowing for economic success, while undervaluing the very fundamental causes of such growth, which includes institutions. What are good institutions and how do they help economic growth? Sure, yes, thank you. So the book that I, that I have written on Europe's growth champion, Insights, from the economic rise of Poland, the most successful economy on the continent over the last 30 years. I've worked long enough in international institutions, the IMF and the World Bank and many other places to understand that just pure macro is not enough to explain why some countries are becoming rich and most of the countries in the world 
uh, continue to be poor or fail to catch up uh, with others. And I think you really need to go beyond the macro and economics one-on-one -on -one, um, to understand what ultimately drives countries' economic fate. And so I wrote a book where Poland and Eastern Europe is an example or a case study of, of a country that for 1,000 years was economically underdeveloped, backward, uh, a few steps behind the West always in terms of its economic advancement, but also a country that over the last 30 years has achieved one of the largest economic successes worldwide. And the major reason why it happened is just not a bunch of structural policies or economic policies that you can read about in the textbook. What really mattered is the fundamental change in institutions and cultural norms that have supported these institutions, which happened after 1989. And the, the, the major driver of this change was the willingness or the, the drive of Poland society to become like Western Europe and adapt Western institutions and to the extent possible, Western cultural norms in the process. I want to talk about 1989 because that's of course when Poland started transitioning out of a communist economy into a more neoliberal or capitalist economy. And this was of course catalyzed by um, the Balcerowicz plan, which was also called shock therapy. What was shock therapy? What policies did it entail? And why did it work so well in Poland? That's a very good question. So Poland was an economic pariah, even among communist economies. It was the worst performing economy in the region, which had virtually stopped growing in late 1970s and then has gone through the lost decade of the 1980s, uh, which ended up with Poland being financially and economically bankrupt in 1989, which is actually one of the reasons why Poland was also the country, thanks to Solidarność, that actually led or spearheaded the collapse of communism. So in 89, the, the sort of the Poland started from a very low base, from empty stores, which I vividly remember as a 14-year-old. My grandma had to queue up overnight um, to get some, some sausages in the morning. There was really dreary times. So what Balcerowicz did is that he liberalized the economy in a, in a, in a shock, shocking manner, you would say, because he opened, he liberalized prices, he liberalized foreign trade, he largely liberalized the foreign currency market and pretty much let everything loose over a few months after the democratic transition. So there was the Big Bang approach that today has a lot of supporters, a lot of detractors. In the book, I argue that it was largely inevitable that not, not only Balcerowicz, but many other economists would do the same thing. Because if you have a, a boat that is sinking, which is what Poland was then, then you really don't have much choice. What you have to do, you just have to plug the holes before you paint the, paint the, the boat. So what Balcerowicz did is, is liberalize, you know, try to plug the, the holes by liberalizing the economy, restoring macroeconomic stability, and giving some basic semblance of a functioning economy. And that indeed kick-started it and was at the beginning of the uh, long growth process. 
intuitively the the rapid privatization of national industries seems problematic to me because it sounds like you will then convert economies of scale into monopolies how did balcirovich prevent the monopolization of large national sectors oh he didn't prevent it what what balcirovich did he first dismantled communist monopolies because for all foreign trade and import in under communism was monopolized by a bunch of selected state-owned enterprises and no one else was allowed to export and import so the big part of the reform was the fact that even i i remember even as a 15 and 16 year old i was trying to make some money on arbitraging prices uh, across borders so and I, and that was allowed and any pole could actually venture out to any country in the world and try to make some money on bringing things back home or exporting things outside. So, so that was his major uh, role, but he was also an avid supporter of the idea of mass privatization at fire cell prices. Uh, and then he was supported in this, in this idea by the IMF, World Bank, and pretty much any foreign expert. Now, I argue that it was a very bad idea that countries that allowed themselves to mass privatize in the early 1990s, such as the Czech Republic, Ukraine, Russia, and a couple of others, they ended up creating oligarchs, which is a fundamental and permanent problem for them going forward. Poland was actually uniquely lucky in the fact that it actually delayed its mass privatization up until 1996, and delayed it because Solidarność, the trade union that led to the collapse of communism virtually blocked it was strong enough to say to the to its own government we don't want this mass privatization we think it's too risky we want to wait so when this mass privatization happened six years later in 1996 poland unlike other countries in the region already had a functioning democracy functioning and free media that could check on the prices they had a strong civil society and most important, it also had a functioning market of asset prices for companies. In 1990, no one had any idea what these companies were worth. In 1996, everyone knew roughly what they were worth. So when they were privatized, there was very little corruption rent left for the future oligarchs. So the bottom line is that today, uh, according to, a, for instance, Transparency International, Poland's level of corruption, perceived corruption, is lower than pretty much any country in, in the region, including the Czech Republic. And, uh, and Poland has hardly any oligarchs and, you know, just anecdotal evidences that Polish football teams are really bad. And one of the reasons this is so that we just never develop these billionaires they can afford to sponsor uh, football teams. So our Polish teams really truly suck in terms of how they play, but the but for the good reason, which is that we just don't privatization never spawned billionaires, uh, oligarchs that could afford to support these teams in the first place. But in the meantime, so between ninety one or like between eighty nine and ninety six, when you finally have mass privatization, what did the government do to? stop a stop an imminent recession so do things like controlling hyperinflation how did Balcirovich manage that so that was part of the macroeconomic adjustment which was again liberalizing prices because that's critical 
for, for market prices to clear. Before, under clamped economy, demand and supply would not meet in the market. It was the, it was the Ministry of Planning that was planning how much of shoes to supply and price was set by the ministry, not by the market. So the fundamental change was that prices were liberalized and the market had to find a new price, a true price like in any market capitalism that would, that would equilibrate uh, demand and supply. So there was a big part of finding part of macroeconomic stability. The other part was about ensuring that hyperinflation which was about 400% in 89 and not much less in 1990, that they would, that would stop. Part of it was monetary policy, as usual it is, high interest rates. Part of it was also anchoring Polis Wati to, to a dollar. So Polis Wati was pegged to a dollar and there was an ongoing discussion even 30 years later, whether the valuation that followed that uh, exchange rate, whether the, evalu the evaluation was excessive or not, but overall, and the fiscal policy was also a big part of it, which was which was about restoring, ensuring that budget deficits are not monetized, are not directly financed by the central bank money printing. So overall, it was liberalization of prices, ensuring that fiscal policy was uh, uh, robust and and sustainable and ensuring that monetary policy would deal with the inflation overhang. So I want to pick up on the Polish currency or the Zwarte, because of course you mentioned that in 1989-1990 it was pegged against the US dollar for a fixed exchange rate and that helped, uh, that helped stabilize the prices and the inflation in Poland at that point. But in 2007 and 2008 it was made a floating currency, which helped it, uh, which helped take the shock of the 2008 financial crisis. What is the importance of a fixed or a floating exchange rate in helping countries either in economic transition or just weathering economic shocks? Uh, sure, it's a very good question, and the answer is that really depends on the level of development and credibility of the country's government and institutions. So Poland needed a peg of Polish Wati to the dollar at the beginning of its transition because there was no trust of the society in the Polish Wati. There was, there was a hyperinflation. There was no, um, no uh, sort of strong backing for Zloty. So the way of restoring some semblance of, of a functioning money market was to say, we're going to peg Zwoty to the dollar, and that will anchor inflation expectations. If we can trust the government that this peg will not change, then we can start stabilize the economy and consumer uh, and producer expectations. So that was needed at the beginning because, again, uh, there was no credibility uh, and no trust in the institutions after communism collapsed. Fast forward to 2008 and nine the global crisis that Poland has gone through with flying colors. And, and one of the reasons it did so, among many, uh, many others, is that this time it had a floating currency that allowed Poland to simply become, weather the crisis better by making exports more competitive because Polish what it depreciated, which makes export cheaper to the foreign consumers. And at the same time, 
cut down on imports because they've become uh, more expensive. And the reason why Poland could afford a floating currency then is simply that by the end of 1990s, inflation has gone down to pretty much single digits. And then after that, it has gone down to close to 2% 2, 2 on average. And all the society and, and Poland has created a strong central bank that, that people uh, trusted and they, they followed it and, and sort of ex inflationary expectations became adaptive. Whatever this, the National Bank of Poland set at, at its inflation target, which was 2.5% plus um, minus one percentage point, has become the sort of the anchor of expectations for Poles. But the bottom line is simply that Zloty has become probably the strongest, at least since the interwar period, and that's why Poland could afford to have a, fl a floating currency. Poland, of course, did join the EU in 2004. Why did, the po why did Poland just not adopt the euro as a currency? For a number of reasons. One is that simply for all of this time, Poland did not meet the requirements to join the euro. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a big question and there was an ongoing debate about whether the requirements to join the euro were too strict or whether they truly made economic sense. But, but Poland uh, had a number of sort of lukewarm attempts of joining the euro, but because it's actually not that easy to do so. For instance, you need to fix your currency uh, within a so-called European uh, exchange rate mechanism. So you need to ensure that the exchange rate fluctuates against the, the euro in a very uh, narrow range. Now that makes sense where markets are stable, but when you have crises and external shocks, then it's a, diffi a really difficult uh, proposition because it means that you need to have uh, support, including for the from the European Central Bank to defend the currency if it were to depreciate too much and breach this range. So it was sort of one of the reasons why Poland did not do it. And there was, there was also not a strong, sufficiently strong social and political and economic consensus to join the euro. And I think it has continued. Even today, it is not only the rhetoric of the governing party, which does not want to join the euro. I think there's also a, 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 almost a very weak consensus about economists whether, whether this would be a good time to join the euro. My bottom line is that euro makes sense, and I think it's inevitable uh, for Poland to join it at some time, but there's no need to rush. I mean, if you, if you wanted an analogy, I would say Poland should get engaged, but not get married with the euro. What I mean by it is that it should keep its foot in the door of the eurozone, make sure that it's close to meeting the requirements, but actually wait until the eurozone really will have fixed its institutional structures, and I think they're still not there yet, and until Poland will be 100% convinced that the benefits of having euro versus having its own currency are truly overwhelming. And the COVID crisis is actually showing that there are benefits of having one's own currency. Uh, for instance, during this crisis, all central, many central banks in the world were, were easing quantitatively. So we're, we're increasing markets liquidity, printing money 
so that the markets, the banks and the markets would not run out, run out of money. Now, when you have your own bank and your own currency, you can do it without asking anyone for permission. If Poland was part of the euro, obviously you would need to ensure that the European Central Bank is, is, is willing to play this game. Luckily, Lagarde, the new president, and the whole central European Central Bank has been very proactive this time, but it doesn't necessarily have to always be the case. So having one's central bank also has benefits, particularly in terms of crises, when it's important to have the decision-making powers within rather than outside the country. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to come back to COVID-19 in a bit. But in the case of the post-transition economy, you argue that there are some institutions that predate the change that make you more likely to make good choices or make choices that help economic growth. Similarly, in 2008, surely there were some institutions that existed that helped avoid the crisis in Poland. So what were the pre-existing factors in 2008, according to you, that helped Poland avoid the crash and the economic crisis? Many factors. One is that, that Poland's by, by its just sheer size is the largest economy in Central and Eastern Europe with almost 40 million of people. It is simply, it used to be uh, much more resilient to external shocks because export and imports represent a small, smaller portion of its GDP. Second, Poland's economy is extremely diversified. So for instance, it's among its exports, there's no single industry that represents more than 5% of total exports. That makes it much different than say Slovakia or the Czech Republic, which are virtually uh, economies largely driven by the car industry. If the car industry is hit by a, a big shock, Slovakia will, will be affected immediately. For Poland is easier because again, the structure is so diversified. It also mattered that Poland had a good macroeconomic policy. Um, it actually increased its budget deficit. So it stimulated the economy through the fiscal policy, which was a very good idea. The budget deficit increased to 8% in 2009 and 2010, and it helped, and it helped uh, cushion the, the, the blow to demand. Central bank also helped because it cut interest rates and ensured that no bank had any problems with staying liquid and solvent. And probably there's also something in the in, in just the structure of maybe the sort of the the character or the resilience of Polish entrepreneurs and consumers. The Polish entrepreneurs have been through so many crises in the in the life, they're just not easily spooked. And the same goes for consumers. They, they continued spending despite the crisis. So for all of these reasons, uh, uh, Poland um, did, did much better than anyone else. It's actually very much the same reasons why Poland will also do quite well during the COVID crisis, even though, and unfortunately, it will, it will have a recession this year, but it will be still much more shallow than pretty much anywhere else in the European Union. I agree. I think that both being interdisciplinary and not being reliant on exports and imports will actually help the Polish economy a lot when it comes to weathering the crisis. But is there a risk that the Polish economy then turns inward and doesn't try integrating with the European Union because it is more self-sustaining than the EU itself? It's a, it's a very good question, but the answer is no. Actually, Poland 
has become much more open since since 89 actually poland now has over the last 30 years poland has increased exports by about 30 times 30 30 times and and now its share of foreign trade it is in its gdp it's higher than in germany so it, it it is becoming progressively a pretty open economy that has joined the the, the global markets mostly through global value chains so Poland's companies are mostly producing our subcontractors for German companies and others in Western Europe, but it's already a pretty open economy, still less open than Slovakia, Czech Republic or Hungary, but already, already pretty open, even more open than, than Korea, for instance. But that, that also shows through, through this recession that we're going through right now, but it does not mean that the economy cannot grow. One of the ways of how you you can ensure that, again, that the, the external shocks are being cushioned is by having a very expansionary proactive fiscal policy. And I'm happy to say that Poland has, um, has followed the advice of economists like myself who argued that the, the COVID crisis is not the time to save money. If it's, a, if it's an, a war with the virus, if it's a rainy day, it's the time to spend, not the time to save. And I think the Polish government has heeded this advice. It has introduced one of the largest fiscal support packages in Europe uh, and, and will have a deficit of, of more than 10% of GDP this year, which is again one of the reasons why the economy will be doing better than elsewhere. So you've of course said that there will be a short recession, but it'll be a lot better than the rest of the world in Poland itself. But do you think that the Polish rate of growth is sustainable? Because again, it's been growing at a supernormal rate since 1989 at a rate of higher than 2.5%, which is much better than most developed countries. Do you think this is sustainable and what is required to sustain this growth rate? I think this is sustainable because Poland economically for the first time ever in its history, over the last 30 years, it's become, let me call it an economic Jamaican sprinter. So it has developed a, a, a sort of an economic gene that makes it super competitive in all kinds of ways and much more resilient um, to external shocks. So it's a bit, you know, Jamaican sprinter or Bayern Munich, whatever analogy uh, you want. The point is that over the last 30 years, the economy has proven itself to be truly competitive. And there is no obvious reason why it should lose competitiveness anytime soon. It has improving human capital, which you can get for really cheap in Poland. I mean, to give a good example, in Berlin and in Warsaw, you can get exactly the same two people with exactly the same quality of education, but one will cost, will come half price. It's difficult not to be competitive if you have such cheap and high quality human capital. Poland is constantly improving its infrastructure. It's part of the open markets in the EU. So foreign capital continues to flow in. Macroeconomic policy is, is, is stable. So pretty much the economics one-on-one, the long-term development factors are, are pretty much still there. And I see no reason why this success should uh, stop, at least not until 2030, where Poland should reach about 80% of the old EU 15 level of income, which will be the highest level of income in, in more than 1,000 years of 
Poland's history. It's already $33,000, adjusting for the lower cost of a hairdresser in Warsaw than in London, um, and is actually three times higher than 30 years earlier. So it's been an amazing success story. There's no other uh, economy in Europe that would triple its income over that period. And I think this process will continue. Long term, though, the fundamental question is whether Poland will ever join the core economies of Europe. Economies like Germany, France, Great Britain, Sweden, the economies that have always been at the core of technological progress and economic development. And I think it's totally different to, to be a country that catches up with others and then to be a country that actually is as good and better than the best. So I would say, again, you're using a, a football analogy that Poland already is a really strong competitor in the, in the Europe League, but it still has a long way to go to be in the Champions League. I actually love these football analogies, but sure. If the Polish cost of labor is competitive compared to the German cost of labor, surely the adoption of Western institutions means that minimum wage laws are increasing in Poland as compared to, say, Southeast Asia. How does Poland maintain an edge over, say, much cheaper labor, such as that coming out of China or Southeast Asia, when it is, in, when it is operating in markets like the EU? An excellent question. And the answer is that one cannot ever look at the price of labor only without juxtaposing it against the productivity that this labor brings, right? You know, a smart person like you, uh, you are worth, I'm sure, $1,000 per, per hour uh, because you can produce value that exceeds the $1,000 uh, per hour salary. So the point is, you know, there will be always poorer countries with lower uh, wages all over the world. But the point is, how much can you really produce? And Poland still has a lot of catching up to do. It now it is at about two thirds of the level of income in the most developed countries in Western Europe. But in terms of productivity, it's not even 60% of what it is in Germany. What it means that it is still a long, a big gap and a big scope for improvement. In other words, a lot of Poles can continue to be competitive by simply absorbing ideas, technologies from the West and doing it simply cheaper. And as long as they will be able to absorb technology from abroad, I'm, I'm quite, um, quite confident that this growth miracle will continue. The other question is, would you have mentioned institutions? In my book, focused or emphasized that the, the, the key reason why Poland and Eastern Europe has developed for the first time ever truly is because it adopted the Western institutions in the run-up to the European Union accession. These are the very institutions that are critical for long-term development. And if these institutions continue, and we could have a separate debate about what has been happening in some of the countries in the regions, uh, region recently, as long as these institutions uh, continue to be sustained, I think there's reason of, of for optimism that Poland and the rest of the region will continue to catch up at least for some time to go. I want to pick up on two last things that you mentioned in your book. I think the first thing I want to pick up on is the trend from extractive institutions to inclusive institutions, which is what tends to happen when you move from 
a communist state to a more free or liberalized state. Do you think that that trend is actually now starting to reverse with the re-election of President Duda because of things like judicial capture and reversing things like the protection of property rights? What I argue in the book, and I, and I borrowed this concept, but then expanded and modified from uh, Daruna Chamalu and, and James Robinson, and, I, and many of the listeners could, could probably have read their book on why nations fail. So they argue that extractive societies are societies that are ruled by narrow elites that do not let the rest of the society flourish. And inclusive societies, as the name would suggest, are societies where, in principle, anyone can make it. So throughout mankind history, particularly over the last 1,000 years, extractive societies did not develop, and inclusive societies are the only ones that have become rich. What I argue in the book is that one of the key reasons why, why Poland and Central and Eastern Europe never truly developed is because up until 1939, they were par excellence extractive societies which were ruled by narrow, harmful oligarchic elites that ensured that no one else could actually strike it rich and could undermine their lack on the political power. Paradoxically and unfortunately, Second World War and communism were the external shocks that have eliminated bulldozed these old extractive structures and created an inclusive society which laid the foundation for Paul's 1989 success. And what I mean by this is that in 1989, it did not matter in Poland or in Czech Republic what name you had, what, who, who your parents were, or what part of the country you were born in. Uh, it was an inclusive society where anyone could truly make it. And even if you look at the list of top 100 billionaires in Poland, Virtually, these are all names of people who had nothing in 89 and made all the money um, after that period. So being inclusive is critical part of being developed and being prosperous. Now, whether this will continue, uh, I am more optimistic than, than many other commentators. I think I'm worried about a lot of changes that, has been, uh, that have been happening in the region, including in Poland. But I, I don't think we, that we have uh, crossed the threshold or the Rubicon of irreparable damage uh, to the institutions. I, I still think that despite the rhetoric, the institutions are still there and they support the economy. You mentioned the elections in Poland, but it's also a good time to mention elections in the US. And the fact that, that luckily Joe Biden has won, I think it's, it would also give Secor and support to these pro-democracy and pro-institution uh, forces that keep the region and keep European Union strong. Excellent. And I'm glad that you're more optimistic than others, because I've heard that some people are incredibly pessimistic about what the future holds for Eastern Europe, especially given the political situations in Hungary and Turkey. The last thing I want to ask you from your book is of course your last two chapters on perhaps a new model for growth in, growth in Europe, as well as the lessons that you take away from Poland. What lessons can we take to help economies better weather the recession that is impending after COVID-19, especially given Poland's exceptional model of growth? 
So one thing, on perhaps on this, uh, if I may, on this pessimism that you mentioned, I mean, it's easy to be pessimistic, and I think there are a lot of reasons why this is so, also because pessimism simply sells. And in fact, when I look back at what people were saying about the region and specifically about Poland in back in 1989, I have not found a single expert, either internationally or in Poland, that would actually predict that, that Poland would become the unprecedented Europe's growth champion and that it would triple its GDP per capita in that period. So that sort of gives you a bit of, a, of, a, of an understanding that pessimism does not always um, need to pan out, but it's always good to think about these sort of bad scenarios because that helps to create the positive scenarios. So in my book, I discuss the risks to the region's future. And for instance, the fundamental strategic risk would be the weakening or, God forbid, dismantling of the European Union. That would spell the end of the golden age for all the countries in the region. And they will be pushed back into the dark economic periphery when they have pretty much languished for, for long centuries. But on a, on a positive side, um, I lay out an agenda, which I loftily called the World Warsaw Consensus, which is a decalogue of policies that uh, countries in the region and beyond would be well advised to adopt. These, these are, these, the catalog covers um, for instance, the need to keep institutions strong, such as judiciary and the rule of law, which is critical in, in all countries in the region, including Poland. It talks about a very important issue of stemming the demographic decline in population aging, which is a, a critical challenge for pretty much any country in the region. And what I think Poland will need to do, it will need to continue to open up to immigration from other parts of the world. And there will be billions of young, smart uh, people that are born, not through their own fault, in poorer countries than Poland. And it will be in Poland's interest to open the door for all these young people to come, ideally to get educated at, at Polish universities and hopefully stay, uh, and, and, uh, stay in Poland and become Polish or simply be part of, of the economy. And also the... the, the the important part of the Decalogue is, is to ensure that Poland continues to invest in innovation because if it really wants to become part of these core technologies, uh, core countries that drive global economy, Poland needs to move from imitation from, to innovation, from a copy to original, from a country of you know, potato chips to microchips. And it's still a long way from achieving it. So it really has to invest most, more in brains and in innovation to achieve it. And that's, I think, a, a good type of recommendation for pretty much any country at the similar level of development. Excellent. And I hope that this future materializes for Poland soon. Do you have any book recommendations or media recommendations for our listeners to help better understand either just transitional economies or the economy of Poland, of course, including your own? Well, <laughs> you could start from my book, which I think you have, you have already recommended enough, but there's obviously plenty of other literature, um, not necessarily only about the region, because my book is not only about Poland. It, it talks about uh, why, you know, how is it possible that a poor country 
that has really not done well for 1,000 years suddenly becomes prosperous. And I think these are lessons learned for, for more than 150 countries around the world that continue to be poor or are failing to catch up uh, with, with the developed countries. But among books that I would recommend, I'm, I'm just an avid uh, and a big fan of Branko Milanovic, a Serbian-American economist who has was a global guru on inequality, but he's also a very creative and fresh thinking uh, thinker. And his last book, Capitalism Alone, I think it's just amazing for all kinds of reasons. Um, also because it just presents totally new perspectives of what drives development and also asks poignant questions of how will the future of mankind look like, particularly um, in terms of the incoming possible clash between political capitalisms, uh, um, you know, ex exemplified by China and liberal capitalism exemplified by America. So I think it's it's a really book that I recommend to everyone, and and uh, and you can come back with sort of it will inspire everyone to think more about the region um, and about their own countries and their chances for development. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Marcin. It's been incredible having you, and this has been an excellent conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed it. All the best, and good luck with the uh, new podcast. Thank you again. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.